Hey, it's part two of our partnership exploration at IMTS 2022, featuring KUKA Robotics. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey folks, welcome back. Today we are continuing to explore what makes for a successful manufacturing partnership. That's right, this is part two in our two-part series with KUKA Robotics recorded live at IMTS 2022 with KUKA and all of their partners. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd highly recommend you go back and do that. That's literally right before this episode, so it is not hard to find, but it will give you some context of what we're about to dive into today. Since this is a continuation, I won't spend too much time here on the front end of this episode. We are doing a series of 10 interviews, and these are the latter five interviews from those conversations where we're taking a look at, hey, what makes a partnership great? What goes into it? Is it technical? Is it relationships? Well, hey, we're exploring all of those questions in these episodes. There's quite a bit of conversation around 3D printing in this one. I know I said we're talking about partnerships, but the reality is we get into a lot of other robotics topics. So for the additive manufacturing junkies out there, you are going to enjoy part two. I didn't plan it this way, but it just ended up being a common theme in these conversations with 3D printing. If you want to learn more, if you want to access links to all the people that appeared in this episode, how to connect with them on LinkedIn, their companies, well, hey, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash KUKA partners. That's K-U-K-A partners. And I do want to let you know there are full length videos for all of these interviews. That's right. This is just the greatest hits. So you're just getting a sampling of what was in those conversations today. But if you do want to learn more, again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash KUKA partners. And if you want to get straight to KUKA's website, you can just go to KUKA.com. One last thing, shout out to my buddy Jake Hall, the Manufacturing Millennial. You're probably familiar with him, but he is the co-host for these series of interviews. And with that, I think it's time to dive back in. In the last round of interviews, we were talking primarily to KUKA's partners, but today we're going to hear things from the KUKA side as we kick things off. We were chatting with Scott McIsaac of KUKA Systems about a bolt-picking robotics application, you know, like picking bolts out and picking lug nuts out, and he shared some of his thoughts around partnerships. So here's a quick clip where Jake will be setting the stage. So we're looking on here. We see a lot of different partners. There is uh, the Keyens, what I call the Keyens Spider. I don't know what the official name for that is. <laughs> but it's the Keyens 3D picking system. We have um, the Magnamotion conveyors. I see uh, a, a shunt gripper on that. What's Oh, and like uh, Turk IB67 block on the end. So there's a lot of yeah. different partners that you guys work with. What is it like, you know, making sure that you're communicating and you're working with all these other different manufacturers, engineering companies in the industry to really bring in solutions together. Yeah, it definitely takes a village to uh, make a system work, right? Um, and we have to bring in all the partners, as you mentioned, um, and everyone has to be within, you know, in tune with one another and so that, you know, the system will come to light and we can make it as efficient as possible. So it has some difficulties, right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's pretty streamlined. Uh, everyone has the same agenda, same goal. 
um, and the project always seems to go pretty smooth. So I want to ask you, we were chatting before the interview, like there's a lot that goes into a partnership. Technology is part of it. But what are some of the human elements that you look for when you're looking at forming a partnership or what characterizes a great partnership? It, 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 come, it comes down to engagement. Um, it, if I know from the upfront uh, part of the project that they're engaged and they have the same goal and same mindset that we want to take this to, um, that it, it will work out and it will be a good partnership. So engagement was the foundation of that answer, but I heard something else in there too. Now, I don't know if it's an attempt to save money or just a lack of trust, but I've seen too many companies over the years not leveraging partnerships because of a, we're going to figure this out on our own approach and often negatively impacting the success of the projects in the long run. Anyway, now that we've heard it from KUKA, let's hear it from their partners again. Next, we're going to be speaking with Jean-Sébastien Nouveau, the president of Quebec-based Weibo, that's W-A-Y-B-O, and they are a company that automates machine shop operation. You're going to learn more about what that means in a second. So without further ado, let's get you introduced. Jean, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. And a big part of our conversations today beyond robotics and technology has been partnerships and you have a perfect story about this because your company is based in in uh, Quebec, outside yep. of Montreal, one of my favorite cities in the world. Oh, um, Jake, you're going to be traveling. I'll be there, there next soon. week. Yes. So enjoy yourself for sure. Get some of the Montreal smoked beef. But <laughs> I got ahead of myself there. The reason this is interesting is you have a very interesting story behind how Weibo started. Yep. Because you were a different company before that, right? A different name, yeah. Different name. Tell us why you changed the name. It's a it's a long story. Make it short. Uh, Quebec is a French part of the country, and the name was more French style. And speaking to English people and trying to spelling my email address was a kind of nightmare. <laughs> it was very difficult. So we were thinking about more globally. How can we have a short name? Uh, because it was automation eclair in the past. So it's a kind of big name, complicated. Mm-hmm. So we found Weibo. So it's kind of short name, and in fact, it means we automate your business operation. That is an excellent acronym yeah. right there, Weibo. It all stands for something right there. But no, I thought you know we were kind of chuckling it at, at it before we started. But that's a real when it comes to like borderless partnerships, working across borders. You know those things. And yeah. I've heard of companies making the mistake in the U.S. by using acronyms that mean something totally different abroad, right? So <laughs> it's a common, language. it's almost a humorous yeah. part of the human element of and, collaboration. And it makes sense, right? You know, KUKA's a global company, and, mm-hmm. you know, they're especially working with partners in all regions of North America. So they're out there reaching out to Canada, but then also you as a company, you, you, you're you changing your brand and you're making it so you can be more accessible to a lot of companies throughout America as well. Yeah, and it's Quite easier to remember also. Five letters. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And we think about accessibility. One of the things that we're looking at behind us is as a machine tending operation, and and we're bringing accessibility and automation to small to medium-sized businesses that allow them to use robotics in a way that's going to keep them competitive. Talking more about what is the solution, what does it mean to a lot of companies out there? And maybe what is machine tending in general to begin with for someone that, that might not have that? Good start. Machine tending is we are using robotic arm to bring things to another equipment. Mm-hmm. My specialty, our specialty, is to feed CNC machine, such as late milling, 
Uh, it can be also inspection, marking, and um, maybe other equipment around. So our specialty is to bring robotic on machine shop. Well, I like this application because I think it's one of the easiest robotics applications to think of yeah. in the machining world, right? You're just moving the stuff around yeah. inside of there. So it's very basic. Let's dive into partnerships a little bit more. We've been doing this in the context of KUKA today. So when it comes to partnerships that you're evaluating for the success of what they might be, what do you look at? KUKA is a huge company and they truly believe on small company around as Weibo or Automation Eclair before. So they they show up and they said, hey, you can use our robot. And I, they told me how it's worked, the specification, and how it's accessible and how it's easy to program. And I said, okay, it's the perfect solution. And also, I'm here in USA with KUKA USA. So it's, they bring us to more global uh, visibility. So it's a good partnership too. And I'm very glad to use their product. So for a lot of companies out there who have not automated a lot of manual processes. They could have been a shop that's been in business for 40, 50, 60 years and their workforce is aging out. And that shop owner is sitting there thinking, I'm going to lose my guys who've been you know, doing this experience for decades. What are some of the first conversations that you would have with a machine builder on what it would look like to move to robotic solutions to meet their their you know demand? Some, some employee are kind of boring about repeating the same job every day. So bringing sure. a new technology, and it's a kind of tool, in, in fact. So we bring a new tool to the employees, and they like it. It, it was surprising me because the, the first thought is, I the robot steal job. And in fact, it's not. It's retaining job because employee loves to use it, in fact. Sure. So it's, it's kind of things that they make it Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Popular topic, Absolutely. right? Robots creating better jobs, not taking away jobs. We love talking about that in, in a lot of our episodes. It's been great having you on. We appreciate you taking the time with it's us today. So another comment about small companies working together with large companies. If you want to connect with Jean-Sebastian or any of the guests or companies that we've been featuring in these episodes, make sure to head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash KUKA partners. I have links to everyone over there. Next up, we have a great origin story ahead of us from Cole Nielsen, the CTO of Orbital Composites. We're also going to get in-depth with 3D printing like I promised earlier. Now, if I were to describe this next part of the interview as if I were having a drink with someone, I would tell you that we're about to talk about what it's like 3D printing drones and what it's like 3D printing antennas in outer space. This is our longest interview of the bunch, and I'm excited to get you introduced to our next guest. This is an exciting interview that we have. We've got Cole from Orbital Composites, in an interview we've been looking forward to all day. You and I had a chance to chat a bit yesterday. You're going to love this I'm walking this into this conversation. Yeah. This is, this is going to be fun. So let's, let's start it off. Origin story of orbital composites. It, you, wanted to build, you wanted to 3D print a drone, right? Yeah. I, that, that was the whole thing. It's like, oh, we can do fast helicopters, like the fastest ever. We should double the speed. Why not? And so, so I spent a lot of time. I spent five months reading everything about helicopters literally ever. Yeah. Right? yeah. To, to the point where like, everything's like, blacked out you know and so, i'll stop here uh and it's like great well here's the design we're going to do that and the kickstarter was really hot back then right like we're gonna do a kickstarter get the video out build everything in my garage and i get 10 3d printers should be able to make 100 drones in a month this should work out 
So I built the first one, the other printer, and spinning up the motor mounts, it just exploded in my face. Like, I didn't get hurt, but like almost. I was like, why did that happen? This was a good part. This I can just, actually a I really can just good part. visualize it disintegrating in front of you, basically. It, 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 <laughs> it just, it was like, like someone pulling a thread out of your sweater. It just, it turned into strings under the vibration load. It made me so sad. It's like, okay, well, like, how do I fix that? You know? And, you know, it took, it took about a year and a half of reading after that, sort of figure out what is missing out of sort of the manufacturing, um, so lexicon. You know? So you say, okay, well, you've got like aircraft. Those are made with carbon fiber. They're really big. They got this, this tape gun that lays everything out. But then when you look at like drones, nobody uses tape for that. In fact, when you think about a Cessna, like a little aircraft or even a, uh, a helicopter, you know, why are they not using carbon fiber in those things? Why are those still mostly aluminum? It turns out that those, those tape placement machines don't do 3D work. So, so then it's like, okay, well, if that's the right material, that's the right chemistry, that's sort of the future of composites. Everybody knows that drones are going to be big. It's some of the flying car thing. That's us. It's our generation, right? Um, but it doesn't exist because the factory hasn't been made. So what does that need to look like? And so then it turns out, well, you know, long story short, you end up with like three different things. You have carbon fiber, copper wire, some kind of plastic. And if you can manipulate those things very well, if you can 3D print layer by layer and then sort of wrap uh, that layer with carbon, you're, you're doing the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that, that seems to have the right sort of elements to it. Um, but the motion is going to be very complicated. So a three axis gantry is not going to get you there. Three axis gantry can only make layers by definition. Yeah. And that, the, but the layers have to become surfaces. They have to go away. So, um, that's kind of what we've done. And then if you look over here, we've actually have not five degrees of freedom, but 12. Yep. Uh, and this is a, it's advanced 3D printer. We can, um, have multiple robots working on the same object at one time. We work with, Continuous fibers, thermoplastics, ceramics, thermosets, with and without fiber. Uh, we can do metal wire printing, mm -hmm. a variety of basically Legos. And we sort of, now at this point in time, we build the printer around the product it's going to make. Yeah. And that's sort of where we are today, big and small. So for those of you who are, who are listening to this podcast and you can't see it, with a lot of traditional robotic additive manufacturing you think of, there's a flat table and the robot's moving around that. But what's behind us is, a single six-axis robot that's holding the workpiece, and another six-axis robot that is operating the uh, the additive manufacturing, the the stacking part. So then, the twelve degrees of freedom are literally two robots working in, you know, in, in tangent with each other to print really complex parts in any dimension. And, and I have a so how do you describe this? Because I love the detail, right? Our audience is largely a technical audience. How do you describe it to a five-year-old? What you do? Um. It's a drone maker. Yeah. That's probably, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, I was, yeah. I guess I was looking for like a 12-year-old answer there maybe a bit. So, but yeah, I mean, you, it, it has degrees of freedom. I think what you said about building it around the part is yeah. a huge aspect about it, particularly for something like carbon fiber. So, no, great answer all around. Uh, but, you know, to, to be a little bit more in depth about it, I mean, you've, you've got, you know, the, the sort of a Pandora's box of problems, right, yeah. that we have to solve. And so, so it's actually really hard to build this thing. It took like seven mm -hmm. years. And wow. so, uh, you know, my kids climb around. We actually started in my bedroom and then garage. And you know, now we have our own laboratory. But, you know, the, the machine itself is sort of, from the beginning, designed to make satellite antennas. It's designed to build drones and sort of these complex 3D structures out of 
the most advanced materials. Yeah. And so for us, it's really important. You know, the, the composites industry is like 90% thermoset. It's going to go thermoplastic. It's going to be recyclable. We need to, you know, skate where the puck's going to be. We got to get in front of all these challenges. We've sort of done that. Um, and then now, like, I don't know, that maybe the high school answer is like, uh, what do you want to make? I will build a printer for that. And then we're going to take you to the edge of human chemistry. We're going to help you meet your potential. Ooh. That's the limit of chemistry. Edge of human chemistry. I love it. No, well, this, I, I mean, what I, what I really enjoy about hearing this story is you mentioned it took you seven years to build this. How did you stay patient? during those seven years. I wasn't patient. That's, okay. That's all why right. it only took seven years. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. Touche. No, this, this has been a, a, a sprint for too long. Yeah. Um, definitely doing startups is hard. Uh, the, the difficult part was actually sort of this complex between being uh, a person people can trust, like, oh, the guy's already done 14 startups. It should work out, right? Or, you know, being crazy enough to say something that's never been said, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so raising money in that area was actually... I would say the hardest problem. Yeah. And we didn't solve it with money. We, we solved it with relationships. We solved it with building trust with our customers and sort of going out and, and, and showing the world uh, in the academic sense that like we've actually done something that's worthwhile. Yeah. Um, so, so now today, like we can sell machines and, uh, and they're good on their own. But, you know, our, our drone product is just about ready to launch. You're sort of getting a great sneak peek of it here right now. Yep. Yeah. So partnerships have been a big thing with a lot of discussions today. Mm -hmm. We've been talking yeah. with a lot of the suppliers here. What's it been like working with a partnership with KUKA and supporting what this process has been about? Uh, that's a good question. Um, part of the reason why we picked KUKA originally is because they had uh, the most precise and lightweight robot possible. So sort of what's standing behind us is this eight and a half foot cube of steel truss, of steel tubes. And, and we can sort of clamp the robot in every position. But we were thinking about, okay, you got two strong guys, maybe at the most. You don't have a crane, you don't have all this other stuff, but we need to get the robot on the ceiling, on the wall, on the roof, on the floor. The robot has to really go everywhere to sort of take maximum advantage of it. Um, and so, you know, the, the Agilus 1 is actually what we started with the orange robot in the back. Now we're using Agilus 2s. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it's, it's a great robot, super precise. Um, and they're, like I said, they're lightweight, so you can reposition them uh, around. The other thing that's really interesting is that, you know, we build Legos. Right? I don't make a printer. I make a box of Legos, and then it's yeah. like, here. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, but so what we can actually do is we can take the robots, these small ones, and actually put that on top of a much larger robot. So so KUKA builds a three-meter robot. Um, it's, it's pretty strong. It does what we need it to do if you want to build, like, a 10-foot-long part. Uh, well, what if you want to build like a 15-foot-long part, something a little bit bigger? So if you put a small robot on the end of a big robot, you want to what we call a fractal robot, but it's it's basically an arm and fingers, right? And then you actually get a much longer thing, the same uh, precision, resolution, uh, and just a really big robot. So the fact that KUKA has both small and big robots, and the small robots are lightweight, lets us put five, six, seven, nine fingers on, you know, one of their largest robot systems. And then, and then when you want to go bigger to make a big part, you, you have to print faster because now it's going to double the size. It takes eight times longer. Well, then use eight printers to do that, right? And so, so that's sort of what the, the finger robots are intended to let you do. Um, and then, you know, they have a variety of products that let us work on wind turbine blades and satellite antennas and drone things. Yeah. And we also make shoes. So, but all right. it's all the same tool. Yeah. doing all of that stuff. Uh, 
I want to ask about the satellite antennas, antennas in general. So the size of, well, for those listening to the audio podcast can't see this, but the size of this is would fit inside of, I believe you said, a Falcon 9, correct? Just so happens. You know, what's it? Uh, ha- what's it? Uh, happy little accidents. Happy yeah. accidents. Yes, right? Bob Ross. Bob, Bob Ross, Ross, the painter. Yes, there we go. Absolutely. <laughs> Best hair ever. Um, yes. So that's just something that worked out. So so what we did actually is we, we built a, uh, we wanted to make an antenna. It's like, well, if you can print the antenna off world, that would be really good because, you know, what is it? Like four out of five man hours in an aerospace company. It's been on design for launch. Mm-hmm. I mean, one out of five hours is spent on design for mission. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's a 20-year mission, and you're not going to launch that many. So yeah. the, the amount of time you can spend on evolution is, is actually really limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the design bias is, is, is horrible. It's called the tyranny of the fairy. Right? So think about it. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to take this Christmas tree. I want to go to Grandma's house. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and decorate it first. Then we're going to put it in the car. <laughs> then we're going to have a 12-minute car crash, you know, banging and rolling around over the course of like two months. In order to get where we need to be, and then we're there. I expect not one needle to fall off. Everything's in place. All the lights working is perfect. Yeah. yeah. How much tape and glue is it going to take to make that what possible? What a perfect analogy yeah. what an awesome... for like designing for launch. Sorry, I had to interject it. That was great. Yeah, that's that's it's great. You keep going. <laughs> and and so then you know then think about you're going to spend more time reinforcing that tree. Yeah. It's 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 patently absurd, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you design the printer to be launched, your workforce just got five times bigger in a day. Yeah. And it's more extreme than that because when you have, you know, the, by the way, you know, the two, the world's two richest men want exactly the same thing right now. You know what that is? Giant antennas in orbit. Why? So you can have satellite to cell phone connectivity, broadband. It's coming. That's the thing. Or maybe it's 7G or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But that's, that's hot, right? So, so in order to get there, you run into practical limits with antenna designs. Okay, well, I'm going to take the antenna and it's going to be a gold-plated carbon fiber umbrella thingy Mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to like fold it up and stuff it in this rocket, but it's $50 million to design that thing. Okay, now you want to change the frequency. It's another $50 million to design that thing and it's at least $20 million to buy it for launch. It's all the design cost, testing, then you still have to pay $70 million later you get your first antenna up there. Look, Believe me, I can launch this for less than $70 million. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. the outcome is not a 20 to 1 expansion ratio of folded to unfolded, a 300 to 1 expansion ratio of roll of plastic into antenna. So, so specifically with our antenna technology, the one thing that we, it turns out they're about twice as efficient as a standard aluminum reflector dish. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't actually know that was going to happen, but we have new physics that we're sort of deploying here. So it's a quantum field antenna. It's not a conductive dish antenna. It's actually only made out of plastic. You can drill holes in it. It works fine, which is great for micrometeorite orbital debris yeah. impacts, right? But, but sort of the, the – I'm so excited about this stuff. But, I you can know, tell. The, <laughs> the outcome of putting all this stuff together is that in the end, you, you're, you're able to make a very resilient, durable structure. Uh, it can be over 100 meters across, larger than a baseball stadium. Right. Yeah. And then from, you know, geostationary orbit, you're going to get like really high quality video. It's, what I'm saying is not weird. Right. Yeah. You think about direct TV, Sirius XM satellite radio, GPS. This is just the next thing. Satellite, cell phone. You're going to need a big antenna. The most efficient way to get that is to launch the printer and then print it. You can use that printer to repair everything. So in space, 
servicing, assembly, and manufacturing is sort of the edge of what uh, you know Space Force and NASA are really looking at right now. We're just trying to help out. Absolutely. Look, look at, looking at the edges of space yes. travel, the edges of chemistry with 3D printing. Cole, you're doing incredible things at Orbital Composites. Wild times. Yeah. Well, with that, hey, I think we, we've had a great conversation. We appreciate you jumping on, sharing your stories. Anything else you want to close with before we wrap? Um, you can do it, too. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I, I don't want to come out here and be like, oh, look, all the best stuff in the world, super fast, you know, and it's mine. No, 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 no. Yeah. We want to give it away. We want to other people to be able to do this stuff, right? So it's like, you know, the, you have the whole composites industry out there. People are aging out. There's a lot of skill-based technology with, you know, cut and and place and all the vacuum bagging stuff, it's not necessarily built on top of knowledge. Mm -hmm. What we want to do is build a printer that's designed to amplify your knowledge and your creativity. That's sort of what the robotic manufacturing system can do. Mm -hmm. And so in order to get there, we have to teach. We have to share. We're going to write a textbook. We're, that's going to come with the printer. Universities are fantastic, uh, uh, you know, sort of customer for this sort of system. It doesn't matter if you're in computer science or machine learning or materials or mechatronics or whatever. It's all in there. And, and we sort of uh, endeavor to sort of make that uh, the people that we will educate with the systems are going to be the ones that pull thermoplastic composites into the industry. And if that can be the exact same thing that we have on orbit, I think the world's going to be a little bit more interesting. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff indeed. Not going to lie. I had no idea four out of five hours spent on design for space travel were for launch. But hey, since that's the case, talk about a perfect application for 3D printing that solves a real issue. Also, I don't know if it's just me, but that was the first time I've heard of Kickstarter in a while. Like, is that still a thing? I don't know. I'll leave that to you to find out. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. We're going to continue our conversation around 3D printing. Michael Duong is our next guest. He's an applications engineer with Ingersoll Machine Tool. As we go into this last partner interview before Kuka wraps it up, let's get some predictions on the future of 3D printing as we dive into a not-so-small 3D printing application. This is a very wide footprint in terms of printing capability right what are we what are we printing in applications like this that would require a you know 500 kg KUKA robot so in this app particular application uh, we're printing um, structures that can be used as uh, shelters when uh, we're starting to do you know space travel and that sort of idea however I would say our primary market is targeting rapid uh, tool development in the aerospace sector as well. We're able to do a lot of 3D printing. Actually, at the end there, we have a tool changer. We can switch out to a milling or a machining hand, an end mill, do a surface pass, and then after that, we can also do other operations. So you can do the additive manufacturing. Your grab looks like to be an ATI tool changer, mm -hmm. and then you go in there, and then you could do post-processing yes. and surface finishing all within the same application, the same work area. Yes. What do you see as the future of 3D printing? I mean, you're obviously deep in the business. I'd love to get your take on where we see things going because it's it's cool that we're seeing more industrial applications here at shows now but i think the world is still looking at it as oh yeah there's a desktop 3d printer yeah. they're not looking yeah. at the massive a, a robot massive 500 kg today. robot that's moving yeah. things around <laughs> where do you see things going so i believe that within the 3d printing space there's a couple facets that are going to be a lot more important in the next couple years Obviously, um, in every application, we're trying to make sure everything's greener, cleaner. So in this case, um, 
printing plastics, there's going to be a lot of development and research into how can we recycle these plastics, how can we appropriately, um, you know, effectively reuse these plastics. I mean, moving to 3D printing was a big move in reducing the amount of waste produced. Instead of starting with a heavy steel block or invar and machining and getting, making and generating a lot of waste, we can start with something that's a near net shape, yeah. do a simple uh, finishing pass on it, we're saving a lot of material. So I think that's gonna be pretty much what drives a lot of innovation in parts of material science. Within the process itself, I think that the application of 3D printing as we develop more ways to construct geometry with the extruder that we have, different um, layer strategies, I think we're gonna see a lot more studies into what other structures or how can we design with the idea of additive manufacturing in mind as opposed to traditionally, you take a part, you see, okay, I used to machine this, how can I make this reversed, you know? What would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions that people think of additive manufacturing? Ooh, that's a, that's a difficult one. In the end, it usually comes down to cost. Yeah. Um, I think that people are pr pretty much put off initially by startup costs. Mm -hmm. Buying a robotic system, especially one that's configured like ours to be much more modular, um, has an initial sticker shock price. But I definitely think that it's more of an investment into your capability as a company to grow. Having something like 3D printing affords you so much more flexibility in basically prototyping, uh, design iteration, editor of design, um, being able to basically have a part designed on a CAD system to an actual part you can produce layup on in a matter of days instead of having to wait most of the time, you're offshoring those costs to different companies to source material, to ship it to someone who can actually have the machining capability to make the part that you want, and so on and so forth. So it's a lot more direct up front, but in th and over time, it definitely covers its own cost and how much you're saving in time and expenditure, ex engineering hours, yeah. so on. I don't know about you, but I heard a bit about sustainability right there moving from a block that you machine down to the part that you actually need, whereas with 3D printing, you build it out. Some important supply chain aspects to Michael's thoughts as well, but I'm glad to hear additive continues to trend in a more pragmatic direction. All right, we're here at our final interview. We're going to be speaking with Matt Roby and Darcy Charbonneau from KUKA to help us wrap things up. You can essentially think of this as a recap where we get KUKA's thoughts on partnerships and also share some of our learnings throughout the day. So let's jump straight into the first question. Darcy, I'll start this question with you. We've interviewed a lot of small companies, for example, right? You know, and I'm curious... Why does a large company like KUKA take bets on small companies when I'm sure you could virtually partner with anyone you wanted to? But I think a lot of people listening to this out there could take that tip back to their own business also. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, it's um, these common companies are disruptive. They bring in disruptive technology to the market, and they're unique with that sense, right? That's It's also the same reason why those kind of companies are attracted to KUKA. We, we fall in a, a form of a company that does really high-end technology, we have robust products, and the two kind of attract to each other. Because we know that those companies that have those niches will eventually be a very large organization in the future, right? So collaborating on the front end and giving, the, kind of going that risk with each other mm -hmm. is always the, the, been the direction of KUKA. And I think one thing that we really saw, you know, 
walking in the floor today is there's a lot to manufacturing. There's a lot of different processes within manufacturing, but more importantly, there's a lot of different solutions that can be brought to the table to help not just the giant manufacturers, but the small to medium-sized businesses as well on solving their problems. You know, right behind us is Kuka's new line of collaborative robots. We talked to Weibo earlier around machine tending to help small to medium-sized businesses with light cell operations. And even the big stuff, right, with the friction welding over there with the big robot, you know, yeah. that's, that's targeting the big companies, you know, the, the EVs and the aerospace companies of the world. And seeing just this breadth of, breadth of applications, but also the size of the solutions you're bringing to market. Is is exciting. I'm, I'm going to ask this question to both of you. You know, and and my my thought is, what makes for a good partnership? In your own personal definition, right? I think some of the things we heard today, we heard a lot of tech answers, right? Like certain technology that brings people together. But we also heard the human side of things as well. So choose your own adventure there. I'd love to. to yeah, hear you I mean, kick it's, us it's off. a shared vision, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, we work with some of the most, you know, ingenious engineers that are out there. I mean, it's really amazing. So it's, it's you know, the alignment between our engineering teams and some of these startups or, or even more mature startups, um, it, it's, it's those pie-in-the-sky ideas that are, are made a reality. It's an amazing opportunity to see everything that's out there, what these companies are doing, whether it's 3D printing, whether you're, you're installing solar panels in the fields, picking apples. It's just absolute going to Mars. I mean, what we get to see and what that shared vision and I think the excitement behind that with, with our teams is what we love. How do you make sure that shared vision is there? Because actually, what, um, it came up earlier in the conversations. The other person described it as shared goals, for example, right? Making sure that that's there. So what are the things you do? Is it a vibe? Is it something formal? How do you make sure you're aligned? Yeah, it's an alignment of team members. I think I think for us is that we, we ensure that engineers are talking to engineers. Salespeople are talking to salespeople. Uh, executives are talking to executives. That's the only way you get to the point where you know that here, this is where we want to end up and this is where we're starting off at. Uh, every partner that we treat is that every partner that we want to treat is that we want to be listened to. They want to be, they want to have um, all the benefits of a partner. As you can see here, everybody in this booth today, this is what you get from partnership from KUKA. You mean the lights on, spotlights on you. Yeah, you know, if I think about it, I can't think of many other organizations that have done something like this literally very meta right now where it's like, hey, we're doing interviews all day long, giving yeah. you a chance to share your story, yeah. giving you a platform to do well, it Well, it's on. showing that it's about the partner, you know, in a lot of areas. And I think that's one of the things is when we went here, we do all these interviews, it's about expressing the partnership and really giving everyone here the opportunity to share their story on how they're you know, as their own company is impacting the industry. We've seen a lot of change happen in the industry, not just in the past couple of years as a result of the pandemic, but over the last five to 10 years as workforce is becoming just this larger trending problem. And I think what's exciting here is a lot of areas around how do we enable the worker? How do we enable the company to take technology and not completely disrupt how they do business, but allow them to work at a pace that they're comfortable with to make them productive? As, as we wrap this up, we kind of want to put a bow around this. So we talked a lot about tech partners today. What are some final thoughts on the partnership topic or areas that, hey, what is what is the partnership of the future look like? And how does the, how do things like this continue to evolve? It, a lot of it comes down to uh, just the ingeniousness of, of these partners and, and the engineers that we work with. I mean, you know, we have a great product, but it's nothing without without these engineers that come up with these ideas and to keep an open mind, too. A lot of the time people come to us and it's kind of like, man, I don't know about that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but they make it work. It, it, it's, it's truly amazing. It's strategic as well, right? From where we are right now with the partnerships that we have in place, 
we have a strategy within Kuga to figure out who do we select now as our partners. And we're open to actually growing our partnerships across the U.S., Canada, Mexico. And with that, I mean, we know the sky's the limit, but we, like I said, we're inviting. If you want to work with Kuka, we're more than open to listening and what you have to bring to the market and what you want to invent next. To add that too also, we really understand that, that startup company. We know what your needs are. We know where you're trying to go. You know, we know the pitfalls, all of that. So I think a lot of that experience that we have with that aligns well too with the. With I think companies. relatability is a big thing, right? You know, even though Kuka is, you know, the the giant of the industry, they can still understand what it's like to be that five man, that ten man, even that one man company who wants to start off, who has this idea. Every company starts off somewhere. We always talk about starting up in a garage or starting with an idea. We've had companies that it's two people with an idea come to Kuka. Now they're a multi-billion dollar company. We have companies we- right here that started in garages yeah. behind us. So yep. That's the American way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. North American way. Yeah. I say we've had a lot of cross-border yeah. partnership yeah. conversations as well today. You know, I don't know. Jake, I'm going to share one thing I learned about partnerships. You know, I... As, as someone that hosts a podcast, it's very much like a leadership podcast disguised as a manufacturing podcast. I very much focus on the human element a lot of times, mm-hmm. and we heard a lot of that. But we also heard about the very niche tech areas that people fill in those yeah. gaps that are in there. So I, I always want to underscore the importance of, hey, you got to have that balance. You got to have the right vibe. You got to have the right product, technology, support. It all balances in. That was one of my takeaways. Jake, what'd you learn? I I mean, for me, I'm going to bounce off a little bit of what you said, but I think the biggest thing here is there's no solution out there that just you think doesn't make sense that couldn't be automated here. You know, the the example from Orbital, uh, you know, Orbital Composites of... I want to make a drone. Well, the drone keeps breaking, so how do I make a drone that's better? I'm going to use robotics in a way that's never been done before to make a more, much more robust solution. And, you know, here we're at IMTS. We think of traditional machining applications from machine tending or material handling and stuff. And then here in the center of the booth is literally something out of this world that's going to go out of this world. Yep you know, as something that's brand new. So if you're a company that doesn't fall underneath the traditional automation manufacturing company, that doesn't mean robotics isn't a solution for it's you. It's true. It's like it was really to explore that. So we're, we're, we as a manufacturer have to push that envelope, right? We have to bring our technology to the table, plus we have to bring our know-how. I mean, if we can't do that and enable our partners or our end users, what are we doing here, right? We have to be able to kind of make that connection that advancement that our partners do, that's what pushes us to in our technology because yeah. constantly things are happening on a weekly basis where it's like, can we do this? And we're like, I don't know. we got to look into this. And then we come up with a solution or we got to come up with a new technology or something we're adding to our, to our portfolio or, or our controllers. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's really, a, we're pushing each other in a, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. and, and I'm going to do some closing thoughts yeah. here as well. When I talked to Nate Brazell, from your team about a month ago on on manufacturing happy hour he talked about how he's stayed on the cutting edge in his career and the way i see it not only from a technology standpoint from a partnership standpoint you're staying on the cutting edge with your team as well so it's been really cool to see we appreciate the opportunity to partner with you as Absolutely, well we've yeah. had a blast today this is fantastic guys. Um, really and it's, it's been a great time just going around the whole booth and exploring not only the tech but the other topics that go into all this and the one well. thing i want to add to that is the community that's here and i think that's just the biggest thing that's missed is it doesn't matter what company you work for it doesn't matter what industry you're in and the manufacturing and the robotics and the automation everyone is family to each other and everyone's willing to step across the line 
to make things work and happen. I think, you know, it wasn't just the, um, the manufacturers or the partners. It was all these other companies that brought their solution to the table who put in their own investment to make sure it works alongside a KUKA robot, just like KUKA makes sure, like, wants to make sure that their solution works with their 3D bin picking system or their gripper or their end-of-arm tooling or their scanning system or their conveyor system. All these different components work together to really push the entire industry forward. And, and I know it's a term that's used all the time, but it's when the tide rises, so do all boats. And I think what we saw that here, you know, during this event. I mean, for us, like I said, it's it's been great having you guys. It's kind of a, I'm glad the vision that we way we had for this event really came to life, and you guys really done it for us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to all the partners out there. And with that, I think we call it a wrap. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Sounds good. See ya. All right, all right, all right. That is it for today's conversation. A lot of good discussions there with the KUKA folks talking about how they look for disruptive companies, getting all parties, engineers, sales, executives, talking to one another. And honestly, if you're listening to this and you are from a large company, it might not be a bad idea to start thinking of new ways to shine the spotlight on your partners. So as we close this out, I mentioned this, I think I mentioned it in the intro of part one, but I wanted to share some of my final thoughts as to what makes a partnership great. Why are they essential? I shared some of that there in the last interview, but here's some of my biggest things that I took away from our conversations. One, there almost always needs to be a technical or an application value add. When we talk partnerships, I think we often get caught up in like the feel-good aspects of partnerships, relationships, trust, etc. But there also needs to be a technical or application gap that needs to get filled by the partnership. Like, for example, in episode one, or I should say in part one, where a robot can provide the necessary accuracy for a no-code application like iCubed's water jet cutting. You know, another thing is accessing new territories and markets. This was most apparent when talking to Warren at iCubed again or Jean-Sebastian from Weibo, who are both Canadian companies and how they're leveraging their partnership with KUKA to gain more presence in the U.S. Then finally, and this was brought up right at the end, but it definitely left an impression on me discussing how small, fearless startups push KUKA to be more innovative on the flip side. So those are a few of my key takeaways. I'd love to hear some of yours as well. A good spot to do that is over in the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. That'll take you to our LinkedIn page where our group hangs out, and that's where we can start discussions to get some of your thoughts on these episodes and your takeaways around partnerships. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. And as we wrap up, remember, there are full-length videos for all of these interviews. Most of these conversations were shortened, but if you want to see all of the tech and all the demos that we were discussing, head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash KUKA partners. One more big thanks to KUKA for sponsoring these episodes. And hey, if you want to create content like this for your company with your partners, email me at chris at manufacturinghappyhour.com with the subject partner videos, and we can start that conversation there. Would love to talk about how I could work with you as well. Anyway, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour.
powered by the Industrial Network.